On the morning of the 28th of June, 1119, a fierce battle was fought out in the borderlands between the Syrian cities of Aleppo and Antioch. It was a confrontation waged during a time of gradual Antiochian expansion into the adjacent territories and towns of the east. And whether either side realised it at the time, it was a battle that would go on to define the entire future history of the Crusades. It was the critical turning point when the Franks might have become masters of the entire region by conquering the metropolis of Aleppo. Or fail and be gradually pushed back to the sea unless they could conquer another strategically important city like Damascus or Cairo. Yet, much to the dismay of the Crusaders, the battle went the other way. On the dust and sands of that brutal field, later remembered simply as the field of blood, due to the ferocity of the fighting, an entire generation of warriors was cut down. Nearly the entirety of the elite Antiochian army, knights and warriors who had served the city for two decades, many of them having followed their liege lords all the way from the bloodbath of southern Italy, across Anatolia and into Syria. On that day, on a desolate plain near the border town of Samada, their journey came to an end. Unhorsed by wave after wave of howling Turkmen warriors, raining down arrows upon him and his men that blotted out the sky, the heavily armoured Prince of Antioch, Roger of Salerno, the last Norman leader of the glory days of Guiscard and Bohemond, continued to fight valiantly atop the hill, surrounded by loyal Armenian and Frankish knights. As he swung his great longsword about him, his giant cross banner resplendent in the air above, Roger was cut down in the thick of the fighting, stabbed in the face through his vizier with a Turkish sabre. The once mighty army of Antioch shattered around him. From that day forth, the Muslim factions of the Levant would increasingly go on the offensive, Antioch ultimately being reduced to a mere shadow of its former self, reduced from independent regional power to vassal of larger kingdoms, alternating between the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Byzantine Empire. Though the victory was almost immediately praised by scholars and leaders across the sunny Islamic world, the mighty army that had won the day was not, in fact, led by a jihadi. Not even close. It was led by a steppe warlord, the grandson of pagan horse warriors from Central Asia. The vast majority of those present still living a pastoralist lifestyle, steeped in the nomadic culture of their forefathers. He was also a ruler who only very recently had been allied to Roger of Salerno and the Antiochene knights against attempts by the Seljuk Sultan Muhammad over in Persia to regain direct control of Syria. That man was Ilghazi, one of the greatest warriors of the age, yet a complicated and often divisive figure. To his men, 
a loyal corps of tribal warriors who served him their entire lives. He was everything. But to the settled, pre-existing populace of Syria and the Levant, he was an outside invader just as much as the Crusaders were. Though Ilgazi was a Muslim, his people were very recent converts, many of them still practicing a folk version of Islam, laced with elements of the Tengriest religion of the steppes, much like the Vikings did in 10th century England, at first merely adding Jesus to the pantheon of Norse gods. Some of Ilgazi's men still practiced burying their leaders with grave goods, a distinctly pagan practice, and he himself often looked to astrologists for guidance. As his ancestors had done for millennia out on the wide open plains of Central Asia. He was also partial to staking condemned prisoners in place and pelt them to death with arrows, a grisly, time honoured steppe tradition. Ilgazi's father, Artuk, had been one of the Seljuk Sultan Alparslan's commanders during his initial forays into Syria in the 1060s. At that time, the main thrust of the Turkic invasions into the Islamic world, which were, in themselves, probably the most important changes to occur within Islam since the time of Muhammad, were aimed primarily at Egypt. The Fatimid Caliphate there was Shiite, and thus a direct opposition to the increasingly neutered Abbasid Sunni Caliphs in Baghdad, who had been able to do little against the near-unstoppable Fatimid advance into the Holy Land over the previous decades. When Artuk died, his sons Ilgazi and Sokmen succeeded him as joint governors of Jerusalem. By 1096, however, after the deaths of Malik Shah and his brother and potential heir Tutush, the political situation in Syria had deteriorated rapidly into factionalism and infighting between competing warlords. Ilgazi allied himself with Tutush's son Dukak of Damascus and Yagi Siyan of Antioch against Tutush's other son Ridwan of Aleppo and his own brother Sokmen. Though Ilgazi and Dukak eventually fought amongst themselves, leading to Ilgazi being imprisoned. Ilgazi's ousted brother Sokmen then seized the chance to capture Jerusalem for himself. Though Ilgazi recovered the city when he was released, holding it until it was eventually captured by yet another player seeking to take advantage of the discordance in the region for his own gain. The Fatimid vizier of Egypt, Al-Afdal Shahanshah. After the second fall of Jerusalem in two years, this time to the warriors of the First Crusade, yet more players arrived to add to the dynastic mixing bowl of Syria. For lack of a better option, Ilgazi went east, seeking to make a name for himself for a time in the fertile pasturelands of the Jazeera, where his brothers had also established themselves, before heading south into the Mesopotamian heartlands to seek service with the new sultan, Malik Shah's son, Bakirak, who was always in need of good commanders.
Upon arriving in Baghdad, Ilghazi found Bakirak beleaguered by civil strife in his realm and plagued by uprisings by the Ismaili Shiites, the previously dominant religious faction before the rise of the Sunni Seljuks, as well as by his own family members and rebel Turkmen commanders. Faced with the difficult situation in Persia and Iraq, Ilghazi distinguished himself by defeating various regional rivals on behalf of the Sultan. As a result, he was given the title Sheena of Baghdad, which was an office overseeing the affairs of the Abbasid Caliph on behalf of the Sultan. Being granted the town of Hulwan on the modern-day Iran-Iraq border as his base of power, always utilising the core group of nomadic Turkmen tribes who had once served his father and now followed him wherever he went, remaining in service to him for his entire life, Ilghazi gained a fearsome and respected reputation as a warrior. In Baghdad, however, he and his men were deeply disliked by the settled Arabic population of the city, most of whom resented the often heavy-handed relations they had to endure with the warlike nomadic warriors. Eventually, after a number of violent incidents, including a particularly slow boatman being turned into target practice by a group of Ilghazi's warriors, widespread civil unrest began to break out, and Ilghazi, faced with a city whose population at the time easily numbered in the six figures, opted to pull out of Iraq entirely rather than risk either a massacre or the loss of his army. By this time, the war between Bakirak and his half-brother Muhammad had turned sour, with Muhammad increasingly getting the upper hand. Ilghazi's withdrawal may have proved the ultimate nail in Bakirak's coffin, leaving him without support as Muhammad moved in to seize the Sultanate in 1105. For Ilghazi, this caution ultimately proved to be a wise decision, as another of Bakirak's Turkmen commanders, Ayaz, was promptly murdered, despite having pledged allegiance to the new sultan. Ilghazi rode north and westwards, back to his family's heartlands around Mardin in the Jazeera, a unique island of pastures between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, grazing land that had been used by pastoralists for time immemorial from ancient Amorites to Parthians, and later to Mongols and Timurids. Ilghazi's return had also roughly coincided with the death of his brother Sokhmen in 1104, who, in his absence, had also risen to new heights, inflicting a severe defeat upon the Crusaders at the Battle of Haran in the same year. Now considerably richer and with an impressive reputation, the returning Ilghazi soon forced his way to leadership of the Artukid family. Though the succession was disputed by Sokhmen's son, Ibrahim, by 1108, Ilghazi succeeded in taking Mardin from his nephew and brought the other Artukid princes and warlords back in line, including a certain Balak, who in time would prove to be one of Ilghazi's most trusted lieutenants and the successor to his legacy. As time went on, it increasingly became clear that Ilghazi was a born survivor. As head of the Artukid dynasty, he made no lasting alliances 
and frequently switched sides, allying with both fellow Muslims and Christian crusaders whenever he saw fit. Like Togtakin in Damascus, founder of another Seljuk successor state, the Boyid dynasty, Ilgazi would continue to navigate the confusing patchwork of factions in the area for decades to come, outliving scores of rivals in the process. Far more than simple Christian versus Muslim, or Crusader versus Jihadi, the Holy Land during the early 12th century was a myriad patchwork of independent states, ruled over by a vast multitude of competing powers, all vying against each other for territory after the decline of the Great Seljuk Empire. Christians allied with Muslims when they needed to, and each had large numbers of the other under their rule, as well as Jews, Zoroastrians, and innumerable smaller religious sects. By 1110, Ilgazi's attempts to destabilise the new Sultan Muhammad drastically came to a halt, when a huge army under the Sultan's general Maudud, the new governor of Mosul, arrived in the Jazeera, demanding Ilgazi's fealty for an upcoming attack on the Crusader state of Edessa, a place that may have meant little to Ilgazi at the time. The attack was ultimately unsuccessful, and the next time Maudud came knocking, Ilgazi wasn't home, simply refusing to take part in flagrant dismissal of the Sultan's authority. In 1114, the Sultan again sent another army to try and defeat the Franks and regain control over Syria, this time under a warlord named Aksunkor. And he had an ulterior motive. This attack was aimed at taking out Ilgazi too, he being the first item on the agenda. Whilst at first glance, the mid-1110s might have seemed like a time of crescent versus cross, the reality was far more complex. The two Turkic armies engaged in sporadic fighting over the next weeks. But ultimately, it was Ilgazi who would emerge victorious, though he was now isolated politically, having well and truly shown himself to be an enemy of the Sultan in his pursuit for autonomy. Perhaps theorising that like Ayaz before him, the Sultan would simply have his one-time enemy disappeared. Several sources from both sides suggest that far from enemies, the necessity of fighting back against the Seljuk Sultan actually brought at least some of the Turks of the region into alliance for a time with the Franks. In 1114, rather than submit to the Sultan, Ilgazi made an alliance with the Franks of Antioch. According to a number of sources, even becoming friends with the city's prince, Roger of Salerno. According to a number of medieval scholars, the two engaged in jousts and friendly competitions with one another as they waited for the Sultan's approach. Though ultimately, the two never fought side by side on the battlefield. Nevertheless, the sources also make it plainly clear that this was an alliance of convenience during a brutal time of power politics. Alliances could be broken just as easily as they were made, and there was usually no love lost between European and Turk. For example, when Tegetkin, the Emir of Damascus, personally beheaded his one-time friend, Robert, 
the Lord of Zardana, most famously when Ilgazi decimated the Antiochian army in 1119, wiping out the force of his one-time ally, Roger of Salerno. In 1115, Roger inflicted a crushing defeat on the army of the Sultan at Tel Danith. In the aftermath, an increasingly embittered Bursuk bin Bursuk had Ilgarsi's captive son murdered on his way back to Baghdad. By 1119, however, after the death of the Sultan in 1118 removed him from the equation, Ilgarsi began manoeuvres against his next enemy, the Franks, defeating them to lay claim to the city of Aleppo and subsequently at the Field of Blood. On the face of it, the victory at the Field of Blood should have made Ilgarsi the most powerful potentate in the region. Rather than capitalising on his victory, however, and pushing his claims on the city of Antioch, the contemporary sources instead paint him as fully indulging in his second greatest passion, getting blind drunk though perhaps exaggerated by the Arab historians, already possessing a dislike for the Turks' allegedly barbarous ways, this was by many accounts a monumental drinking session that allowed Baldwin II the time to finally ride up from the south to the aid of Antioch. Many of Ilgazi's warriors, meanwhile, laden down with plunder, dispersed back to their pastures, thus saving the city for now. Though Baldwin now took direct control over Antioch, in addition to Jerusalem, and the rising star of Jocelyn of Courtenay assumed the position of defender of the north. Nevertheless, Ilgazi still found himself in an exceptionally strong position. He'd won the struggle for Aleppo, and now enjoyed the lucrative riches that flooded into the metropolis from the east. He also began to be portrayed by Arab writers as a saviour of the faith leading more and more jihadis from all over the Middle East to flock to his banners. Though what they found when they arrived was perhaps disappointing. Meanwhile, under the cover of the raging power struggles for Syria, a new power had been arising to the north. Beneath the shadow of the Caucasus Mountains, by the shores of the Black Sea, the Kingdom of Georgia an independent Christian realm. Georgia had initially survived the Seljuk invasions of the late 11th century by becoming a tributary state, paying an annual sum of money, ceding some of its territories, and perhaps most offensively to the Georgian people, seeing migrating Turks use their pastulans at will whenever the season dictated it. By the late 1110s, however, Georgia's young and energetic king, David, later sainted and remembered as the Builder, due to his vigorous restorations of Georgia's former glory, had been gradually expanding his realm, absorbing frontier fortresses, reorganising the army, and most importantly from a propaganda point of view, stopping the Turks from grazing on his lands. Even before the arrival of the First Crusade, Back in 1096, he'd stopped paying tribute to the Turks, and by 1104, he not only annexed the mountainous kingdom of Kaleti, 
but also defeated the Turks of Ganja at the Battle of Erçuki, before seizing the momentum to secure border fortresses from the Turkmen of the region between 1104 and 1118. By 1120, the situation for the local Turkmen rulers on the shores of the Caspian Sea had become so severe that they began to look for outside assistance. Gone were the glory days of the Seljuks, when these regional commanders could have called for the assistance of tens of thousands of riders under the command of the Sultan of Baghdad. But luckily for them, a new leader had arisen. Like them, he was not of the Seljuk royal family, yet he could command an army of tens of thousands. Of course, they called for Ilghazi, riding nominally under the banner of the new Sultan, Mahmud, who declared a holy war against Georgia in 1121. Ilghazi enjoyed a phenomenal reputation at this time, in the wake of the Field of Blood, and, due to the exaggerated stories of his piety banded around by Arabic scholars, he was now viewed by many as a saviour of Sunni Islam. The resurgence of the Georgians' military enemies, as well as David's demands for tribute from the independent city of Tbilisi, brought about a coordinated Muslim response. As Ilghazi approached in midsummer 1121, the other Turkmen rulers of Azerbaijan began to converge upon his position. Ever the daring and skilled tactician, however, David managed to pick some of them off one by one before the armies came together. In particular, descending upon the Emirate of Ganja to massacre the local population. Nevertheless, the assembled Islamic army was still vast likely numbering several tens of thousands, though Georgian accounts of as many as 500,000 are likely highly exaggerated. Unfortunately for Ilghazi, however, David had a trick up his sleeve. He had decided to fight fire with fire, bringing with him his own contingents of Turkic horse archers straight from the steppes to the north of the Caucasus Mountains. According to the Arab chronicler Ibn al-Athir, David sent a small detachment of these Kipchak warriors in order to seek out the leadership of the assembled Islamic army. Either assuming them to be deserters or lost Turkmen, Ilghazi did not regard them as a threat, allowing them to enter the camp. Before he could react, however, he and his commanders found themselves hailed with arrows. The Kipchaks killed every officer they could hit before being cut down where they stood. Meanwhile, the main Georgian army successfully managed to deploy a large portion of soldiers in hidden positions, where they could almost encircle the Turks in a pincer movement. Supported by contingents of heavy cavalry from the Crusader states, David then seized on the confusion to order a full frontal attack on the Turkic vanguard. This mauling only devastated Ilghazi's forward lines, but it also entangled his archers in close combat, effectively taking out the crucial component of their battle plan. In the ensuing chaos and confusion, compounded by the fact that the Islamic army was made up of innumerable smaller forces who hadn't fought together before, the Georgians began to advance on the Turkic flanks in full formation. Without hesitation, 
King David personally led the Georgian right flank, ordering his heavy cavalry to ride straight into the seemingly disorganised Seljuk reinforcements, attempting to reinforce their vanguard. Having the advantage of moving downhill, the charge of the Georgian cavalry proved particularly devastating. Realising that the situation was hopeless and severely injured by the Georgian approach, Ilgazi gathered all the men that he could and withdrew from the battlefield, leaving the rest of the force virtually leaderless. With David's Kipchak allies joining the fray, the final remnants of Seljuk resistance crumbled and joined the rout. In only a few hours, the battle had been decided, with Ilgazi suffering the first significant loss of his entire career, and the Turkmen of Azerbaijan suffering a devastating defeat. The unification of Georgia and the elimination of Muslim authority was completed in the year following the Battle of Didgori, with David laying siege to and capturing the city of Tbilisi, which for nearly 400 years had been an Islamic town. Having his forces exhausted and being wounded himself, Ilgazi returned to Mardin in an emaciated condition. The Battle of Didgori had helped the Crusader states immeasurably, which had been under the pressure of Ilgazi's armies. The weakening of the main enemy of the Latin principalities proved to be especially beneficial for the Kingdom of Jerusalem under King Baldwin II. But Ilgazi wasn't over yet. In 1122, Ilgazi and his protégé, Balak, defeated the new Count of Edessa, Jocelyn I, and took him prisoner. With the next year came another high-profile prisoner, this time the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin II. Though, ultimately, Ilgazi wouldn't live to see it, dying before the year's end. Potentially from old wounds suffered in battle, Balak succeeded him in Aleppo, and his sons Suleiman and Timotash succeeded him in Mardin, joining the ranks of the multitudes of independent Baliks that had now appeared throughout the Islamic world, all populated by steppe nomads following the pastelands of their herds, just as they had done for time immemorial out on the Central Asian steppes. For a brief time, the great Seljuk Empire had prospered as a unified realm under the control of Alp Arslan and Malik Shah in the late 11th century. By 1119, however, a multitude of semi-independent and completely autonomous Turkic realms had come into existence, a testament to the lack of centralization and ever-ambitious regional commanders that had plagued the Sultanate since its earliest days. In Anatolia, the Seljuks of Rum warred against the Byzantines and the Danish men's Turks. Just to the east, the Shah Armans and Soltukids held sway, and, of course, the Artukids. In the wake of Ilgazi's death, now led by his nephew, Balak, though, ultimately, it wouldn't be them who would permanently arise to fill the void of Seljuk power in Syria. Rather, it would be another Turkmen commander, one of the most important in history, Ahmed ad-Din Zengi. Zengi. 